channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker with my good friend, Ferris Age Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. Welcome, Ed. Hey, good to be with you, Ron. Yeah, as always. Hey, the top 10 business myths. So what's myth number seven? You're throwing a quiz at me? Yes. My own presentation. I'm giving you a test. Yeah. (laughs) Number seven is about strategic planning. Begins by determining a revenue target. We decided that that was not the case. In fact, it began by looking at value rather than that. But just to to really do a a quick countdown, because we're going to deal with myths five through one today, but just in the interest of of completing the picture and providing context, I want to let you know that myth number 10 is that differentiation can be achieved by saying you are customer-focused. And the emphasis there, of course, is on the saying. And of course, every business says they're customer-focused, so the actual differentiation is only achieved by a very few select elect companies and that we just can't have people just saying that they're customer-focused because it really doesn't differentiate at all. Uh, myth number nine is that the customer is always right, and I mentioned that Harry Selfridge never said this, although he is purported to have said it. And what we decided with myth number nine is the, pr- the problem with that is that it would mean that all innovation would cease because it would mean that if the customer was always right, well, then they would be leading us from an innovation standpoint. And clearly that's not the case. It's companies that actually innovate. Myth number eight is that business is a science and requires data to make decisions. And I used a really fun, long, two polysyllabic word called logical positivism to describe this. And this just basically means that just because there are numbers does not mean it's scientific. And I think that's where people fall down. Uh, we, We also went out of our way to point out that we're not against all data. But just that you really need to pay attention to it and don't let it cloud your judgment. And I think you know that was a, somewhat of a, a retelling of some of the things we talk about with moral hazards of measurement too. But just put it in a, a business context. And as we mentioned, myth number seven was that strategic planning begins with determining a revenue target. We decided the better way was to look at value on that. Myth number six was that leadership is about changing others' behavior. And we decided that that was really manipulation. And Ron, you and I both like the Peter Block definition of leadership, which is that leadership is about confronting people with their freedom. And we gave some stories about how we think that should take place. Uh, Ron, I'm going to turn it over to you. And and after just introducing myth number five, which is that focusing on efficiency makes your company more effective. And the origins of this myth, I, I, for me, lead directly back to you in some conversations when I first met you that have evolved into what is called at the Verisage Institute, hum, uh, with, with, uh, we all, with all honor, the effing debate, EFF. <laughs> right. And, and Ed, I, I've learned this from Peter Drucker and Stephen Covey and, and others, but 
you know, the difference between efficiency and effectiveness, and we talked about this on our very first show when we declared our independence from the tyranny of Taylorism, and that is that efficiency is just a mindless ratio, some type of, you know, outputs divided by inputs, whereas effectiveness is defined as doing the right thing. And since we can be efficient at doing the wrong thing, efficiency shouldn't be the focus. And, and I think that's what you're getting here with this myth, that, that if we focus on efficiency, we'll be more effective. And, and that's obviously not the case because, again, you can be efficient at doing the wrong thing. Yeah, in, in which case, why bother? And I think I, we've, we've told the story of, of the insurance company that decided it was a good idea to get their life insurance policy into the hands of their policyholders within 48 hours of it being signed. Of course, nobody in their right mind cares when the life insurance policy arrives, just as long as it's in force, because you're not thinking when you get it in the mail, oh, I will hope I execute on this puppy today. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yeah. they were they were they were terribly efficient, but at the wrong things. But even even worse than that, though, is that long term it can lead to con, con, complete stagnation of the organization. And then this going back to Drucker's point is that the the last buggy whip manufacturer was the most efficient. Right. Right. And you made this point, too, uh, in that first show where you said the more you focus on efficiency, the more inward looking uh, your organization gets as opposed to outward looking to the customer and adding value. That, that's exactly correct. And, and, and your customer does not care about your efficiency at all. Just like we've mentioned that they don't care about your costs, they don't care about your efficiency. No one goes into an organization or any, any store, any professional organization going, I, mean, you know, I hope these guys are really efficient. And because the customer doesn't care about it, it's just something that we, we shouldn't put forward as, as being the preeminent thing that we worry about in our organization. Now, this is where people get trapped, right, Ron, with us, is that they think that we are then anti-efficiency anti and that we should go, go, go back to quill pens. That, right. that is absolutely not what we're saying. That, that's, uh, yes, because you know, Peter Drucker is pretty explicit about this. A business is not paid to be efficient. A business is paid to create wealth outside of its four walls or, in his terms, create a customer. And you know, we can be efficient with things – but we can't be efficient with people. And it's one of the things that we've talked a little bit about, Ed, but maybe it's, it's worth, worth it to reiterate the point that we humans don't like complete efficiency, right? We, we inherently trust organizations that have resources to spare. Now, this is why banks put big steel vault you know, uh, on their, on, inside their banks to give you that feel of, feeling of security and protection, even though with you know the the advances we've made in metals, uh, they wouldn't require those big doors, you know, with the round wheel lock and all that. It, it, yeah, it's done for psychological reasons to 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 make us feel safe and that our that our money or our belongings are secure. And it's it's it, it kind of goes into that whole thing that people are repelled by efficiency. I you know we we joke, but it's true. I don't want an efficient marriage. I'm I'm not even sure what that means. Well, the Pittman McGee said, you know, the opposite of love isn't hate, but efficiency. And I just love that quote because it, it, it is. What does it mean to describe your relationships, not only with your spouse and, and loved one's kids, but with anyone, with your boss, with, your, with the folks that work with you? Oh, we have a very efficient relationship. It's kind of repulsive, actually. 
<laughs> I remember driving down to Key West and I saw a sign. In fact, I think I took a picture of it uh, and it said efficiency apartments. And it just kind of gives you an image of what that's going to be like. You know, it sure it's, does. It, it's not. It's going to be pretty sparse. It's not going to be a Ritz Carlton. The the other thing I think we can say about this as well is that efficiency is rather tactical, whereas effectiveness is very very strategic. Right? Again, uh, efficiency is not a table. It's a table stake, mm-hmm. and it's it's effectiveness that creates competitive differentiation and competitive advantage in the market. I mean, think about Apple, think about Nordstrom. These organizations are effective at at customer service and all of that, and they're not necessarily the most efficient. I mean, just look at the way an Apple store is laid out. That has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with efficiency. No, it's sometimes anti-efficiency the way that they've got them laid out. I mean, I find that they they they're they're but they're purposefully looking to give you some some space to see things. Right? It's not a. It's not about because if if it were like every other store, you wouldn't be able to see from one end to the other because they'd have you know billboards in front of the, in front of you uh, saying oh, iPads over here and but they don't want that. They want they want you to feel that at home. They want you to feel as high tech as the product is. Right, and and then I would even go with this with on and, and say about this myth that it's actually the exact opposite. I do believe. That if you focus on being effective, you can actually become more efficient. And, and I think the great example here is the after-action review. The after-action review initially is not very efficient. However, not only does it make you more effective the next time you, you go to do a project, but it also makes you more efficient. So focusing on effectiveness is what makes you more efficient. You know what? It sounds like we should do a whole show on after action reviews, Ron. Well, I think we are going to. I think. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I, I, well, I, that's next week's topic. I think we've been talking about it a little bit. You know, we talked about it on replacing the performance appraisal, and since it's it's one of the key replacements for that, and we said we'd do an entire show on it. And and as you know, it's 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 worth an entire show because, folks, we do believe it is just the best knowledge management tool ever devised by civilization but before we leave this topic ron there's one two things that i wanted to state first is that originally this myth read something different and i'm going to say it on the on the show here but it it was too inflammatory it whenever i presented it this way it just made people insane and it and it was it was or i i phrased like this i said effectiveness all, or the, the myth was efficiency always and everywhere is more important than effectiveness. That's the myth, right? And I would counter it by saying effectiveness is always and everywhere more important than efficiency. And boy, that's the thing that got people insane. That can't be. There are times efficiency is more important. Oh, my God. I, I, I think I actually wrote that in my book, Ed, and I and I do take a lot of flack for that. <laughs> it's it's uh it's not a popular statement and yet it's it's absolutely true. If if you just think again that we can be efficient at doing the wrong things, then that kind of knocks it it checkmates them. It it really does. What, what about before again before we leave this topic? The, we have mentioned this word, but I think it's worth spending a little bit more time on than we have in the past, and that is efficaciousness. You know, if we're blowing people away by talking about effectiveness, 
man, they're not quite ready for efficaciousness, are they? (laughs) (laughs) No, but it is a better word. We talked about this being, you know, one of those $10 words that you'd never see on somebody's website. Although you do see it, I bet you do see it on pharmaceutical companies because the medical profession uses this word a lot. In fact, the first time I heard that word, Ed, was from a customer who was both a lawyer and a doctor. And we were working on something that was very complicated for his tax returns. And he looked at me and he said, Ron, I trust you're going to do whatever is most efficacious. And when he walked out of the office, I ran to the dictionary and said, <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a great word. What a great word. Because it, to create the desired effect or the optimal effect. The optimal, right? yeah. The maxim- yeah. What I love about it is Maximum. the maximization. Yeah. yeah. And that's maximum. what knowledge workers should be doing. Of course. Of course. And that's what the customer wants too, is not, not only to, for you to be effective, but the maximum possible benefit. It's, it's beyond that. And that's what I really think. That's where the, the, and the, the value. We, in a, in a sense, have, have linked these three concepts back to cost, price, and value, right? We say you know, cost is obviously a concern about your efficiency. Um, effectiveness is a, is, a, is a concern about your price, and that's really what the customer is, is looking for. But it's at a minimum, right, your effectiveness. Right. But efficaciousness is really the, the concept of value, which goes above and beyond the price that they're paying. Right. And of course, that is something that you're trying to maximize. And that is something that you you want to maximize as the business. And also your customers want you to maximize it or they want maximum value from you. And therefore, your interests are completely aligned as opposed to cost or price where your interests are not aligned. They, exactly. they would like a lower price and you would like a higher price. But here <laughs> on value, we're, 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 our interests are completely aligned. Yep. Yep, and and by the way, that's never going to change. They're always going to want a lower price. Just I, let's just yep. accept that. <laughs> I, since we emerged from the cave and started bartering for loincloths, I think uh, the customer has worked to get the best deal possible. <laughs> they certainly have. Well, Ron, this is some pretty exciting news for us. We have a couple of new sponsors on the show, and one of them we're about to hear from at our first break, and that is Leading Results. Leading Results is an organization that is dedicated to having you not. Waste money on your marketing. They, they, want, they want you to spend marketing not only efficiently but effectively on the right thing. And we really want to thank them for becoming a, a, a sponsor of the show, uh, The Soul of Enterprise. So welcome to Leading Results as one of our sponsors. Absolutely. And when, and when we get back, uh, we will talk about our next myth uh, after this word from Leading Results. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Table for one? Right. There's like a 12 of you, miss? Oh, that's just my back office. They're always with me. Okay. 
With Sage, you're securely connected to your back office no matter where you are, so you can make the sale, send the invoice, and see how it all adds up from anywhere. Uh, they're not going to get out of hand, are they? Now the power to make confident business decisions follows you everywhere. Use Sage to make your back office as mobile as you are at workfromsage.com. That's workfromsage.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. And we're here. We're talking about the top 10 business myths. And we're focusing on myths number five, counting backwards to number one. And we just did myth number five, which is focusing on efficiency makes your company more effective. And I think it's just the opposite. I think if you focus on effectiveness, you'll be more efficient. But Ed, your, your uh, myth number four, I think, is very, very thought-provoking because it's increasing market share leads to increased profitability. And I have to tell you, I think this is so endemic it certainly deserves the label of conventional wisdom in nearly every business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it's, and as you say, it's more conventional, not so much wisdom. I, I have been on uh, at conferences where a certain former CEO of a very large technology company sc- was screaming, ranting back and forth at the top of his lungs, Market share! He was... Like freedom, in yeah, Scotland. exactly, like exactly, <laughs> exactly. And this, he was nuts. And anybody who is understanding who that reference is has has probably seen that. Uh, he's a very intense person to begin with, but I, it it's just shows you how endemic it is that even this this top guy at perhaps the world's lar- largest software company at, at one time, anyway. Yeah. Uh, would would be so susceptible to this myth that that thinking it's all about the creation of market share and what I find fascinating about this one is that there there are very uh, interesting uh, parallels to the market share myth the smaller and smaller you go because if you believe the market share myth it also you also then believe that it's all about raising revenue in your organization right raising revenue getting bigger revenue is the same thing as increasing market share right that's it's yep. fair to say that yep. it also then means that every customer is then therefore a good customer because any revenue that we get is good revenue because it increases our market share right and this is the faulty logic chain that really is a problem for a lot of organizations because not every customer is a good customer. Not every good customer – well, not every fu- customer is a fit for, for your organization. And if you believe it's all about market share, well, it just means you've got to take every single customer that's willing to pay. And uh, you know, I've been consulting for years and one thing that I have said to people is, look, if you want me to double your revenue in a year – I can do that with not, with not even thinking about it. It would be easy to double your revenue. I'll put you out of business doing it, but I'll double your revenue. <laughs> yep. And, and, you know, the term itself, market share, 
uh, came in, in, into play around sometime in the 20th century, or, you know, 1920s, 30s, something like that. And I think the first use was in the 1940s in, in a printed article. And it was actually a term that was used by anti-business writers, you know, that were talking about antitrust and, oh, the market share and concentration and things like that. But what really linked this myth to the business world was a 1975 Harvard Business Review article by a professor by the name of Robert Buzzle. And the title of the article was Market Share, A Key to Profitability. And boy, did this, you know, this was the conventional wisdom. You know, they they say intellectual ideas and ideas percolate out of academia. And in this case, this was certainly a big one. And it hung around for quite a long time. And I I still think it's there. It's kind of like Taylorism, you know. it still haunts us. Oh, it absolutely is there. It's it's all over. And but you know what? The funny thing is, is it's so easy easily falsified, right? You you need not look any farther than General Motors and Toyota to to falsify this. And I think this is one of the examples that is used in the great book by Richard Minniter, The Myth of Market Share, where he says, look, General Motors. And I think at the time of the writing, still had a sixty-plus percent market share. They've since now fallen below fifty percent, and then I think they were went back above, back and forth. To, with, oh, and with, I uh, think they're I think they're around twenty. Are they way down now? <laughs> yeah. <Okay. they're>, yes. <laughs> Maybe yeah. below. Maybe below. Absolutely. So, but but the whole the whole point. Well, you know what I was thinking was was was. Uh, uh, not just the, the market share, but it was number one in the market. I'm sorry, yes. and the, and and they were number one in the market for for decades, but sure. slowly became less and less and less profitable over time. Um, simply because, as as I like to joke, that if you look at General Motors' balance sheet, you quickly realize that they're an automobile company. I'm sorry, they're a pension fund that happens to make cars. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, in this book, The Myth of the Market Share by Richard Minniter, and by the way, he's a former uh, editor at The Economist, and I just think he's a fantastic writer. And and this is a thin little book, folks, and highly, highly recommended, even though some of the examples that are dated, because in the book, if you remember, he's touting Dell (laughs) as both a a market leader and a profit leader, a market share leader and a profit leader. but. Mm -hmm. But he cites a study, and, and I think it would probably still be true given what we know, that 70% of the time, the highest market share company is not anywhere near the company with the highest returns. Mm-hmm. It's usually the third or fourth one down, and that's true 70% of the time. And that should just dispel this notion that growth for the sake of growth, you know, the whole top line, we need to grow, we need to get market share. Uh, this is insane. Uh, one of the points that I love that he makes is that if you're concerned about being a market share leader, you're focused, you tend to focus on your competitors as opposed to being a profit leadership model where you become focused on your customers and adding value. And what better proof of that is there than Apple? Absolutely. Who, as I understand it, they're about 50% of the market share right now for uh, the the smartphone marketplace, but uh, the, the, I, I've seen reports of anywhere from seventy to get this run, a hundred and twenty five percent of the profit of in the, the space. Profit. And, then, and people are like, well, it's... how can they have one hundred and twenty five percent of the profit? Oh, because the others are losing money. <laughs> <laughs> and then I don't think it's even fifty percent. 
if I remember right, they're they're down around thirty or forty percent in the USA. Now I think yeah, it varies. Think is, yeah, yeah, it yeah. varies by country, but you, I've seen some of the same reports. I haven't seen the hundred and twenty percent, but it, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. I mean, we know that uh, you know Sony is attaching a hundred dollar bill for every TV that leaves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but one of the things that Miniature points out in the book is that market share is a result. It's not a cause. And you were talking about General Motors uh, having 60% at one time, and I believe they did, uh, of the entire U.S. market. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of Sears. You know, at one point, Sears and Roebuck was 1% of this country's GDP. They had a massive market share, and a little guy from Bentonville, Arkansas, took them out. Now, Sam Walton didn't, he wasn't focused on market share. It was the result of him giving a better deal to the customer, right? So the market share is a, it's a result. It's not the cause. Mm-hmm. Right. And if, 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 I guess if anything is true, right, you can focus on profitability. And then if you want, you can choose to grow market share. Uh, you know, I guess an example potentially could be if BMW, which I, believe is still the most profitable automobile company if they wanted to grow market share they probably could but they're they're so focused on you know the ultimate driving machine that they really don't want to grow market share that's not that's not who they are right i mean you can kind of look at the failure with mercedes-benz trying to go and grow market share with their smaller class of of mercedes and all it did was it tarnished their brand mm-hmm. right so my philosophy on this ad now interesting to get your take as i always say look go for profit share and market share will take care of itself. I, I totally agree with that, and, and that and that's really the message when I deliver this presentation: is look, grow, grow profitability. Make sure you're focused on on being profitable, uh, and, and and then if you want, if your organization supports it, then you can grow into other market segments or or just expand in the current one if you want. But that, that, then that leaves you to say, well, do we want to reinvest our profits in that or are we just happy where we are? Are we, are we making enough profits for the size of our organization now and, and not really want to get, get so much bigger? You know, there's, there's like the whole efficiency and there's the, 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 the church of efficiency inside businesses. There's also the church of scalability too. And you know, people economies say, well, of scale. Economies of scale, and unless you have, unless you have, unless you have scalability of your business, well, then why bother? Well, that, that's nonsense. Now, now, there's some truth to it in terms of technology companies in there, like Google. Obviously, is is very scalable, but I I, I think this is also a word issue. Uh, I'm when you say scalability, I'm thinking of economies of scale in the, in the traditional meaning and. What we know these days is that economies of scale is actually diseconomies of scale. And, and let's also point out, since probably a good chunk of our audience are professionals and professional firms, there are no economies of scale in a professional firm. A, a law firm doesn't get more efficient when it has 1,000 lawyers as opposed to 500 lawyers. It just doesn't. <laughs> You know, I could the, I could probably make a pretty convincing case that it gets less efficient. Just, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> you probably could. And you know what? We were in Canada recently, and I watched you do a session. And it wasn't this one, but it was uh, another one on strategy. And you said something that I thought was, was actually pretty profound, and it was kind of a throwaway line. But you said, you know, if you think about a startup, when you're a startup – all you're, all you're focused on is the customer and how do we add more value. And then as you start to get bigger, you start to, to, to turn inward and 
worry about these things like market share and revenue and efficiency and all of that. But uh, and and I just when you said that, it reminded me of Starbucks. You know, Starbucks didn't set out to grow market share. They set out to to create a third place to go and and to make people passionate about coffee. And and as a result, they grew and had market share, mm-hmm. much and, like Walmart. And, and- and they've done it very well, <laughs> but but you're, but as a result of being extraordinarily profitable in their first store, second store, third store. Yes, yeah. So I I think the way to sum this up is to say revenue is vanity, but profit is sanity. I, I remember like I remember working with a, a a top fifty insurance company, and they sat around and they told us that oh well we'll take we'll we'll go up to a fifteen percent negative gross profit. On, a, on an insurance sale, and we're like, what? Are, what are you, a 501c3? What, what do you mean a negative gross profit? Why would you even sell a policy at a negative gross, gross profit? And I said, well, we need growth. <laughs> so I guess we'll make it up in volume, right? That, that's, a, that's an old accounting joke, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is, and it's insane. I mean, focus on, and, and you know, uh, w- one of the things that Minitor does say in this book uh, is not just to focus on profit. He's actually, he does talk about value and, and, you know, innovation to the customer and all of that. And that's, I think, what we would say. If you focus on value and adding more, then the profit's going to take it care of itself and your market share will also take care of itself. I absolutely agree, Ron. So, well, folks, when we come back, um, we're going to get into myth number three, and in the meantime, we want to hear from our new sponsor, Azamba. They are uh, CRM consultants, and we're really excited to have them as part of our family here on the Soul of Enterprise. So we'll be back after this break uh, from Azamba. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network table for one right there's like a 12 of you miss oh that's just my back office they're always with me okay with sage you're securely connected to your back office no matter where you are so you can make the sale send the invoice and see how it all adds up from anywhere uh they're not going to get out of hand are they Now the power to make confident business decisions follows you everywhere. Use Sage to make your back office as mobile as you are at workfromsage.com. That's workfromsage.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit verisage.com 
You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to the soul of enterprise. Myth number three is that excessive profits must be because the company is doing something evil. There, there's so many things wrong with this one, Ron. It's hard to hard to start, but I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on the first, which is who gets to define excessive? Do I do, do I define excessive as two percent, five percent, fifteen percent, fifty percent, seventy five percent, five hundred percent? What's excessive? And, and can I just add, Ed, over what time period? Yeah. I mean, sure, oil yeah. companies can make a, a fortune in some years, windfall profits in other years. You know, they don't do very well, and nobody s- says a peep during those bad years. Well, they say they're trying to hide the profits. That's what they say, Ron. But, <laughs> and and just, I, I also like to quote the late Senator Paul Wellstone, who said probably the most stupid thing I've ever heard regarding enterprise. He said, in industry, he's talking about the pharmaceutical industry. And mm-hmm. he said, this is an industry that makes exorbitant profits off sickness, misery, and illness of people, and that's obscene. And, you know, I know he's no longer with us, but this is such a stupid argument. It's like arguing that farmers make money off our hunger. And, you know, that's just ludicrous. Farmers keep us from hunger, and pharmaceutical companies keep us healthy. Right, they're, right. They're not. They're not playing off of sick. They're 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 there to to make us well when we're not. And the the whole notion is is just just completely silly, because as I said, there's there's no objectivity behind uh, excessive, right? It's, and and of course, as Milton Friedman points out, it's always the other guy who's greedy, right? You and I aren't greedy. It's the it's the other people. It's always the other guy. And it's always it's always the guy. And, and it needs to be said, Ed, we said this in the Corporate Social Responsibility show a few weeks back, that you know most companies don't make a profit, right? Certainly startups and things like that, but even, even if you calculate a return on capital, uh, most companies aren't really making that much of a profit. Profit's only about 10%, 12% of our national income. Mm-hmm. However, it's so important to the allocation of resources because it provides an incentive but it also transmits information about what consumers value. And if you think about a country who had an experiment in a utopian fair price, you know, wherever where prices were going to be set scientifically and based on cost and there'd be no ripping people off, you know, we'd put people before profits and all that when you see that stupid bumper sticker. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the old USSR. <laughs> and it didn't work out really well. Yeah, they had, they had fair prices, but you know what? Their store shelves were empty. What's the story of, of Gorbachev when he went with, and met with Margaret Thatcher about the department store and asked, you know, how, how, how did you get all of this stuff here? And, and she said, I didn't. Prices do. <laughs> yeah, he, he was in an appliance store and he was amazed at the, the variety and colors of like washing machines and refrigerators. And he's, he asked her, well, how did you do all this? And she goes, I, I didn't. She just looked at him just, you know, incredulously and said, I didn't do this. Prices do this. Right. <laughs> but, then I, I, you know, th- this, is a, this is a long-standing debate if you go back into theology or, or philosophy, the concept of a just price. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get your take between the word just and fair price 
because it's never couched in terms of a fair price. If you read the historical literature on this, it's always talked about as a just price. What is the difference? Right, and it's been misinterpreted. This is a fascinating uh, story, and uh, this was pointed out in a, in a video that I saw on, on Reason TV. We'll have to post it with the show notes. But the the, the idea of fair is an Anglo-Saxon concept. It's, it's only – in English, and, and I think there is a, a, a notion in German as well. But uh, the, the idea of fair is an Anglo-Saxon concept. And this happened when we were up in Canada. I, I talked specifically about this subject, and I had we had some French speakers in the room. And I, I said to uh, them, I said, can you translate the word fair to French? And they came back and it said, juste. And I said, mm. okay, great. Can you translate the, that back to English. <laughs> and she said without, she said, just. And I said, see? <laughs> well, right? So if you go one to the other, it, you're not getting, because fair and just are two different things. In fact, the Anglo-Saxon opposite of fair, you have to go to baseball to understand. It's fair and foul, right? Fair and foul, now, right. We, would say, we would say a fair price, meaning just, but we would never say a foul price. Foul price. That's, that's kind of odd. What do you mean by a foul price? I mean, I guess bad smelling. I mean, I, you know, it, it, it's uh, it, so it doesn't it doesn't really make sense because the the concept is different. What is meant by a just price is one that's accepted by the customer, and if the customer pays, by definition, it's just. You know, that's a great analogy with the with the fair and foul from baseball. I'd never thought of, I'd never thought about it in that framing, but that that's excellent. You know, when I hear people say, "Oh, that price is unreasonable," and they buy it anyway, and I'm like, "Well, only unreasonable people pay unreasonable prices." <laughs> uh, you know, this is what a stupid comment. I mean, if you buy something by definition, it must be fair. Mm. You know, unless you were coerced or there was fraud or something like that. I'm not, you know, but. Right. Uh, the, the other thing I think that has to be said here is some of our favorite definitions of profit. Um, you know, certainly George Gilder's definition that profit is an index of your altruism, mm-hmm. right? Um, which I, which I love because it's other directed. But Peter Drucker also says that profit is the price that we pay for tomorrow. Correct. It's profit yep. that funds innovation and R and D and all these other great things. And I'm always fascinated that. It does seem to be that people aren't so much repelled against high prices. It seems they're more offended by high profits. And and I just wonder, Ed, why we don't feel that way about actors or movie stars or athletes or even when somebody sells their house at an enormous profit, you usually end up giving them a pat on the back. But mm-hmm. when a business does it, they're evil. Right. And we mentioned this in the last show, too, is like it's, it's OK for somebody to make 50 million dollars developing violent video games. But God forbid you should make five hundred thousand dollars as the head of a, a company that's seeking a cure for a disease because that should be done not for profit. Right. Right. Um, you get a, little, a little crazy. The way I sum this up uh, is, hey, you know what? This is capitalist acts between consenting adults. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Love that. So true. Well, number two on our myth list is the is that price is based on cost, and th- this one we we've told the Farniente story I think in a few episodes, so I want to we'll skip that. But if you want to listen listen to it uh, on older episodes, but there's lots of stories that illustrate this idea that price is not based on cost, and I think my favorite one uh, is is the the Hewlett Packard printers. Now this is an apocryphal story. I'm just kind of making up the. 
the the story as we go along. But but it, it it's true to to the to actually what happens. So you say you go to Best Buy and you you're walking in the printer aisle and there's three Hewlett Packard printers. There's the seven ten, the seven thirty, and the seven fifty. And there's a, you know the price under each each of them, and the 750 is the most expensive. The 710 is the cheapest. And other than the price, the big differentiator between those three printers is going to be the speed at which they print, right? So eight pages a minute. Then the next one up, the 730 is 12 pages a minute, and then the highest one is you know the 750 might be 16 pages a minute. Well, think about this: if you're the engineers at Hewlett Packard designing the 700 series printer, do you a Design the 750 and then – or I'm sorry, design the 710 and figure out a way to speed it up or do you B, design the 750 and slow it down? And of course, the obvious answer is B, right? You design right. the 750 and then they strip value out of it. And in a lot of cases, what they've done is they then go and write code, which they put on a chip and they stamp into the sucker and say, don't print so fast. You're not a 750. You're just a 730, Right. <laughs> Which or actually just costs a, some more. <laughs> well, exactly, and that's the yeah. point is that you know, and I've told this story in front of you know rooms of cost accountants who just basically fall off their chair and like quivering in a mass of jelly on the side of their chair because they can't process this. Right? Yeah, How something is it costs more and is priced <laughs> yeah. less? Exactly. How is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> it's the same with FedEx, isn't it? If they do a three day delivery, it, it actually does cost them a little bit more at the margin because it's in their system longer as opposed to an overnight delivery. Yet it's a heck of a lot cheaper to send something three days than overnight. Or worse than that, we've talked to some people that worked at FedEx, and you know, they say that you know, the, if you get a if you get a priority item and a, and a standard overnight, the priority overnight you get at ten o'clock in the morning. Well, guess what? The standard overnight is on the truck, and they're going to drive away and come back four hours, five hours later. That's right. They're going to make you wait because that's what because you, you're price sensitive, and that's what you paid for. That's the value trade off you made. Mm-hmm. The other thing about this Ed is. You know, Henry Ford was a really interesting guy, and he, in his autobiography, My Life and Work, I think, from the 1920s, um, he, he, he has a great line that I just absolutely love. He said, he says, no one knows what a cost ought to be. And, you know, if you think about that, that's pretty profound. And I think this is kind of the philosophy behind this target costing where – you know, you, you kind of you, you target the cost after you know the value and the price you're going to sell it for. And, of course, that's determined by how much the customer is willing to pay, their income, a whole host of factors. But the cost is kind of last. The cost is not first like cost accountants think. It's actually last because Henry Ford was a genius at figuring out better ways and, and cheaper ways, of course, because his strategy was to lower the price and sell as many as he could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the way I like to think of it is, okay, price is not based on cost. Price instead justifies your cost, right? Yes. It's, it's, it, it, the, the fact that I can get X price for this means that I can justify whatever the costs go into, which are theoretically have to be you know X minus. Otherwise, you're not going to be in business too long. Or as we said earlier, you just make it up in volume. But – but it's it's really it's all not, not that difficult to put put a price higher than your costs. The my my eight year old son who was able to do this when he was four watching basketball games could tell the difference between two different numbers and say that okay one hundred and five is greater than eighty four. Right, and and if it was true, Ed, that that price is based on cost, 
then no business would ever go out of business because every anybody can just take a cost and mark it up with, with desired profit and set a price. I mean, but businesses go bankrupt all the time. And why is that? Because they don't produce anything of value. So logically, it's got to be value-driving price and it's got to be price-driving cost. Now, my friend, that is the coup de grace right there. If this were true, and so many people believe it is, no business would go out of business. That's flat out the the, the, the logical conclusion from this. And and yet, Ed, cost plus pricing is still endemic, and you know, and I know there's a lot of reasons for it, but I think the big one is something that we've talked about before, and even talk, talked about it with Royce Sutherland. Is this idea that it satisfies? It's good enough. It's simple. People understand it and it's good enough. We can calculate it. We can calculate it. You can't, yeah. you can't calculate the price. Uh, if you're, if you're basing it on value, it, it becomes a non-formula. It becomes a, a judgment. And, you know, we, we, the, we, as we've talked about on this show many times, people like to get something that they can measure and, and they don't like the notion of, of being a judge at all. Right. So the, Folks, this is a big one. Price is not based on cost. Cost is actually based on price. <laughs> and and that, that is, uh, it is head shattering for me. Ed, as a former cost accountant, when I first learned this, it, it took me a while. I really wrestled with this. But now it is definitely the way the world works. Yep, and after our next and last break, uh, this one's sponsored by Sage. We will be talking about our last and the number one myth. So right after this message from Sage. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Table for one? Right. There's like a 12 of you, miss? Oh, that's just my back office. They're always with me. Okay. With Sage, you're securely connected to your back office no matter where you are. So you can make the sale, send the invoice, and see how it all adds up from anywhere. Uh, They're not going to get out of hand, are they? Now the power to make confident business decisions follows you everywhere. Use Sage to make your back office as mobile as you are at workfromsage.com. That's workfromsage.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit verisage.com you may also tweet us at verisage that's v-e-r-a-s-a-g-e now back to the soul of enterprise 
Well, welcome back, everybody. And Ed, we're we're at the final. I feel like I'm opening the envelope here. And <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> do we have a drum roll? Uh, yeah, I can. <laughs> not too bad. Business myth number one. Boy, I, I have to tell you, you nailed this. This is this is brilliant. Go ahead. Yep, business is a zero sum game. Boy, how pervasive is this one, sir? Yes, all over the place. And you know what? I I I saw I saw I partially blame accountants for this. I partially blame the the, the ubiquitousness of sports analogies that we use in business. Mm-hmm. Because obviously sports, you know, one team loses, one team wins, and also politics yep. is politics a zero sum zero sum game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. But business isn't. Why not? Well, because both sides benefit from the transaction, and there, there's a couple of really interesting things just about that word. First of all, the word transaction trans it means beyond, right? So it's beyond the action. Right beyond beyond the actual thing that's happening here is 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 something magical, something in, intense. Uh, uh, I think John Stossel, at least this is where I saw it first, is the first to point this out as what he called the double thank you moment. Right, that that moment in in our in an exchange where you get the cup of coffee and you give your four dollars and you both you say thank you to the barista and the barista says thank you to you. And it's an odd, odd construct, isn't it, Ron, to both say thank you. The only reason why you would say thank you to someone is because they just did something for you, right? They did something that benefited you. So how is it that we both benefited? Well, I wanted the coffee more than I wanted my four bucks, and Starbucks wanted my four bucks more than they wanted the coffee. So therefore, we both benefited from from that, from that, uh, that transaction beyond the action. So I, pro- Starbucks obviously made a profit. Because they, you know, paid their people and the barista and all that stuff, and le- for less than than four dollars. But I wanted the coffee more than four dollars. I wanted uh, the pleasure of drinking a Starbucks latte on a on a beautiful fall afternoon. Right. So, so Ed, this concept of a transaction is certainly true at the micro level. But let's just talk a minute about the macro level because this is true on a macro level. And and I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people, and I say. Are you worried that China or India or any other country, for that matter, is getting rich? Well, yeah, because they're taking our jobs and blah, blah, blah. It's the same fallacy. I want China to get rich. I want India to get rich because the world's wealth is not a zero-sum game. It's not like a pizza. If I eat more, you have to eat the box. It Mm -hmm. it doesn't work that way. If, If China finds the cure for cancer, we'll all be better off. You know, and if it, it, it just it drives me crazy, this zero sum thinking. I mean, I understand there's geopolitical issues and military issues, but from just an economic perspective, we want the world to be wealthy first because it's the only antidote to poverty that we know of. Exactly, and you know the the, the way I like to describe this one too is I personally think we got a really good deal going with the Chinese. I mean, they send us TVs. We send them green pieces of paper. <laughs> I, I know it's the equivalent of writing letters to the North Pole and getting toys. <laughs> I mean, Rock it's, on. It's, yeah, absolutely. We get actual tangible things or goods and services we can use. Um, but, you know, and I think this kind of goes back to something that we talked about in the first and second law of marketing shows that we did as well. This, this concept that, that value is subjective the Mises, the uh, Ludwig von Mises point, or the marginalists point, that val- all value is subjective. And another thing that's really interesting about this too 
is, you know, Mises' point about the restaurant. If you, you can't make a distinction from a value perspective between the chef who cooks the food and the person who sweeps the floor, uh, because you know, enjoying good food in a in a restaurant that smells like a sewer is is not very valuable. And I think that that is what's driving value here is this holistic concept. And you know, it's obviously when we buy something, we're receiving more value than the cash we're paying, and that's actually what's generating wealth. So exactly. how can it, how can it be zero sum? It, it, you know, this kind of goes back to the Gordon Gecko movie too, doesn't it? Wall Street. It, it does. It, right when when there's a scene with with Gecko where he's talking to Charlie Sheen's character, I forget what it is, Bud or whatever, and he says, "It's a zero sum game. Wealth isn't created or destroyed; merely transferred from one perception to the other, like magic." Now, I agree that it's like magic, but I disagree with the zero sum game thinking. And in, in fact, here's a great illustration of the magic piece of it. And I forget which economist came up with this idea. Ron, you might know. But imagine if the Port of Long Beach uh, or on the Port of Long Beach, I I came up with a fantastic machine that allowed you to pour corn into it and out would come cars. Right. Right. And uh, you you would be hailed as a hero, right? You mean all we've got to do is ship corn to this place, pour it into this machine and out come cars? Yep, that's all you got to do. They would they would think that I am the greatest being that has ever walked the planet. Of course, that is actually I know that is actually what the Port of Long Beach does. Yep. (laughs) Right. So that's what what's incredibly magical about it is that we put in corn and outcome cars. But here's the thing: they want our corn way more than 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 we do because we have a surplus of it, and we want the cars because not that we have a surplus of them, but because they can produce them perhaps better, faster, and cheaper than we can, so we get a better deal so we can spend our money on other things. Right. Yep. And it, it would be it'd be hard for us to live as a society if we just had to produce everything on our own. It'd be crazy. So, yeah. No, this, I, I love this because I, if there is one myth I could dispel for most people's mentality, it would be this idea of a zero-sum game. That myth needs to be broken. It is it is so ubiquitous and everywhere and and like you were talking about that we talked about the China and the TVs and all of this is you know governments don't trade people do like th- thank God there's not one big office of TV order taking down in Washington D.C. trying to figure out how many TVs to order from China every year because. I'm telling you, that's not going to work, right? I, I know. And at some point, we need to do a whole show on the, the whole trade deficit and just what a abysmal – talk about the moral hazard of measurement. What an abysmal measurement it is when, you know, when Apple sends the uh, iPhone to be assembled in, in China and then when it ships back to us, did you know that they count it as a Chinese export at the full value? <laughs> Even though they added like – Maybe ten dollars worth of cost to the thing, and we're gonna and we're gonna sell it for double that here, exactly. and aftermarket, and 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 that just in, totally in, it distorts our our trade statistics. So the, the the trade deficit is absolutely the most meaningless number that I can think of. Well, it's an it's an accounting fiction is is really where that what that comes down to. It it doesn't it it's not really a deficit, right? I mean, it, it, it's the wrong way of even thinking of it. It's like a scorecard: we win, they lose. But that, that's that's nonsense. It was, I guess, Bastiat who said that you know by that lo- by that logic, if all exports are good and imports are bad, we should hope that all ships sink at sea. 
<laughs> I know I love Boston. He had the, the wickedest <laughs> sense of humor, and that's just that's one of my favorite lines from him that we should sh- sink the ships at sea, and that way the world would just have exports with no imports. Well, yeah, but we'd be a lot poorer. Because I think the other thing that needs to be said here, too, is this idea of wealth. And people think of wealth, and they think of money, stocks, all this type of thing. And, and we know it's human capital, but it's also manifested in the amount of goods and services that we have available. And, and I'd rather be a wealthy person today than a wealthy person 200 years ago when there was really nothing to buy. Absolutely. Well, that, that concludes our, our thoughts on the, the top 10 business myths. We hope you'd enjoyed it. And we got to roll right into our close because next week's show, we're going to be talking about the document that both Ron and I think is the most powerful knowledge management tool that has ever been developed by mankind. That's a lot, isn't it, Ron? But it's true. It is. It is very true. I'm looking forward to that, Ed. And that is the After Action Review. So... We'll, we'll see you on next week's show. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Save Software, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us again next week at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, when we'll be talking about the best knowledge management tool known to man, the After Action Review. In the meantime, folks, feel free to visit us at verisage.com slash TSOE or email Ed or myself at TSOE at verisage.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in 167 hours. 